Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. And uh, as we continue our study in this wonderful little book of Esther, and, uh, let me add uh, my voice to saying, there's people here. Praise God. Love it. I'm so excited to be able to uh, have at least some of you. Uh, it's not the same, though, isn't it, until we're all gathered together. But we're moving in the right direction, and so we praise God for that. And so I'm delighted to be able to worship with you. And uh, God's already been working in my heart. I hope he has in yours as we sung his praises. And even um, gave our congratulations to Dr. Dawn. I just think that's pretty extraordinary. And she is requiring uh, the honorary title from here on forward. It shall be Dr. Dr. Dawn or Dr. Cochran, I think. We'll we'll take either one. So congratulations, Dawn. I'm so proud of you. And I'm excited to be able to serve, continue to serve with you. So here we are in Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one who the king's, one of the king's most noble officials, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and ask that you give us hearts to attend to it and mind to understand it and a willingness to be changed by it, to follow what we learn in it. We long to live, even as we sung today, a life worthy of our God, for you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our obedience and certainly worthy of our attention uh, these next uh, minutes as we consider your word. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there once was a boy who, at the age of five, had written an advanced concerto uh, for the harpsichord. By age 10, he had published several violin sonatas and was playing, uh, from memory, the best works of Handel and Bach. By age 12, he had composed and conducted his own opera before the Austrian queen in Vienna. He was then awarded, at age 12, the honorary appointment as concertmaster with the Salzburg Symphony Orchestra. By age 35, when he died, he had written 48 symphonies, scores of operas, and over 600 works in total. 
He lived, some have said, up to his name. Johannes, Christostomus, Wolfgangus, Amadeus, Theophilus, Mozart. And yet the tragedy of Mozart's life, though he achieved the height of success, perhaps achieved more success than anybody in his profession, achieved celebrity and wealth, he died impoverished and obscure. In fact, at his death, he had no friends, virtually no family. He was living in poverty. He had wasted all his money, and he was completely forgotten as a composer. Few would come to his funeral, and because the storm happened at his funeral, no one would attend his burial. And so when they were asked, where is Mozart buried, no one knows. Perhaps the greatest composer of all times, dead at 35 in an unmarked grave. And so he demonstrates for us, of course, a a quick fall from incredible heights. Well, we begin to see something of that sort here in Esther chapter 6 in this man named Haman. Now, you know, of course, just by way of review in our study of uh, Esther, the Jews are living in Persia. Haman has risen to the rank of second in the country. We might call him prime minister. And he has decided to kill all the Jews in Persia, in the entire Persian empire, because of one Jew in particular, a man named Mordecai, who would not bow to him. The queen, who happens to be a secret Jew, decides to risk her life in order to intervene. We saw this last week, didn't we? And then she's very crafty, very subtle, very wise, very patient. But when we were studying Esther 5, we didn't see much progress, right? All, all she was able to have was a nice dinner party for the king and Haman. And we're, we're left thinking, is she able to pull off the rescue of her people? And to make matters worse, while she's planning yet another banquet, uh, unknown to her, Haman is so infuriated by Mordecai that he plans to kill uh, Mordecai in the morning. So the Jews have about 10 months before their destruction. Mordecai has about 10 hours. And so we're, we're left thinking, even if Esther succeeds in saving the Jewish people... How will she save her father, Mordecai? She's totally, totally oblivious to the plight in which he's in. And so if we were watching a movie, and this kind of sounds like a movie in, in some ways, it would almost be that scene where the bystander is, is about to die this gruesome death. You know, the bus is hanging over the, the cliff, and it's sagging more and more, moving closer and closer to the fall, and we need the hero to arrive, don't we? Well, what we'll see in Esther chapter 6 is that the hero is God. It is the Lord who works. And though he is not mentioned, as as we've rehearsed many times in our study of Esther, is not mentioned once in this book, he is working. And I think here in Esther chapter 6, you could probably see God's work most clearly. We we won't see him, but we see what he's doing. We see the effects of his action. For instance, you you might look out the window and and you, you would look in vain to see the wind. You cannot see the wind. But what can you see? The effects of the wind, the leaves blowing, the trees swaying, and so forth. Well, sometimes God shows up in the Bible, as we know, and he works through miracles. He shows up as a burning bush, and, uh, and he, he might show up through a revelation. He might show up and, and put somebody in a headlock, as we see in the story of Jacob. Oftentimes, God shows up, and he's very clear. But most of the time, God shows up not through a miracle, not through some angelic vision or, or something of that sort. Uh, he shows up hidden. And he rules providentially. And his plans, nevertheless, are fulfilled. And that's what we see in, in the book of Esther. I think what we'll, we'll look at, we'll, we'll consider this story, and we'll say, okay, it's clearly God's doing that. And this is, of course, the doctrine of providence. This is what the book of Esther is all about. That God keeps his promises as he rules through his hidden providence. Now, one of God's promises that are repeated over and over in Scripture is found in the book of James. For instance, the Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We know, of course, uh, Jesus even spoke similar words in the book of Matthew. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And what we're going to see in Esther chapter 6 is that God is working providentially to humble the proud as he works to save his people. That's why the title of this sermon is Pride and providence. These are the two themes that we'll be considering this morning. The pride of Haman, the providence of God. We'll be working back and forth through those theme, themes. In fact, this is all taking place why both Mordecai and Esther are sound asleep 
have no idea what's going on, will contribute nothing to their own uh, deliverance, but we know that God wasn't asleep. In fact, he makes sure that he's not the only one who is awake. As you consider our first of three scenes this morning, uh, first of all, providential insomnia. Providential insomnia. Notice verse 1, we read very simply, on that night the king could not sleep. Now we're not told why uh, he's awake, but it kind of makes sense, I think, why he can't sleep. He is, after all, uh, ruling the known world. He is ruling the largest empire uh, that the world had ever known up to that point. That's a lot of responsibility, don't you think? That's a lot of stress. Moreover, he's married to about 100 women, okay, which is also a lot of stress, okay? Right? I mean, think about it. There's 100 anniversaries to remember. You can imagine that would keep somebody up at night. And so the king, of course, is awake. We find him here. Uh, and and we, we kind of hope that he's awake because he can't sleep over this genocidal edict that he was willing to pass. But clearly he has forgotten about that. And that will, be, in fact, be clear in the next chapter. Um, but his, his, the fact that he cannot sleep, I would suggest to you, and I think this will bear itself out, that is actually a work of God. God is the one who is keeping him awake. And it's no coincidence that it's on this night, the night prior to Mordecai's execution, that God wakens Mordecai and, I believe, even directs his nighttime activity. He, of course, could do many different things could in, in order to fall back asleep. Notice what he chooses to do in verse 1. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. You might think the king seems a little old for a bedtime story, uh, but God works in mysterious ways. And so here he is, he wants this, this, this story read for him, and what a bedtime story it was. This would have been a list of the victories in which he has won, a list of the lands in which he has conquered, the taxes which he has imposed. Uh, it, it would probably be like reading uh, the, you know, the, the minutes from the last elders' meeting, which is sure to put anybody to sleep rather quickly. And I think that's probably what's happening here. He says, let's find the most boring thing I can read. You read it to me. That's going to knock me out. My kids, by the way, feel free to use this. They use my sermons. So whenever my kids, you wake up, Daddy, I can't sleep. I come in, I put the sermon on, and they are asleep before I leave the room. And maybe, maybe some of you are enjoying uh, that ministry to you right now on the couches in your living room. Okay, and so here we are. Uh, so read this book to me. Uh, that will put me out. But rather than falling asleep, notice the king is actually jolted wide awake as the scribe reads to him how Mordecai had saved his life. We see this in verse 2. And it was written, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, of course, is his person name. Xerxes, his Greek name. We'll stick with Xerxes since that's easier for us. Well, we're reminded here that the, what we already learned at the end of Esther chapter 2, that Mordecai had learned of an assassination plot, and he told Esther, who went on to tell the king in Mordecai's name. Now, this is not extraordinary. Of all, all the books to read, uh, he reads this book. Right? And of all the places to read, he, he has read the place where Mordecai saves his life. And on all the nights, in order to read that, He's reading on the night prior to Mordecai's execution. I mean, what are the chances of all these things coming together? I read a couple weeks ago of a man who was bitten by a shark, a bear, and a rattlesnake, all within a four-year period. So he should stay indoors more, I think. And well, statisticians, because they have nothing else better to do, evidently, figured out the probability of that taking place to one individual within a four-year period. They came up with 893 quadrillion to one. Well, that sounds about right to what we have here in Esther chapter 6. I mean, what are the odds of all this taking place on this particular night? But I think we probably conclude when God is involved, the chances are about 100% that his way will uh, come about. Well, all this makes the king wonder, what do we ever do for this guy, Mordecai? As you see in verse 3, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been, been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said nothing has been done for him. We know historically that the Persians uh, gave great rewards for those who served the Persian Empire. They were actually, there was a title given to them as king's benefactors. For instance, there was an assassination attempt on actually Xerxes' brother, the man who foiled that assassination attempt was awarded a governorship. 
Right? This is what they did in order to promote loyalty. Now, Xerxes finds out nothing's been done for Mordecai. I mean, could you imagine if that happened today? There, there's, could you imagine an assassination plot on the present? That's hard to believe to begin with. Uh, but then again, then, then, then someone actually foils that assassination plot. I mean, what would, that, that would be just a, a massive deal, wouldn't it? I mean, he would have book deals. There would be uh, uh, on the talk shows. He, he would, uh, there'd be White House ceremonies, right, where uh, his medallions being placed around his neck and all sorts of things. I mean, this would be a, a huge deal. And, more, and, and Xerxes find out nothing's been done for Mordecai. Who's going to save my life next time if we don't reward those who do it now? He should be rewarded. And again, I say this is good timing because he's about to be executed in just a matter of hours. That might be a good reward. I'd like not to be executed, please. And so uh, we have all this coming together on this very interesting night. You might think, oh, well, that, that sounds like coincidence. Right? Well, coincidence is simply the non-Christian word for providence. Okay? Non-Christians, they don't know the word providence. And so all they're left with is coincidence. But, of course, we, we know the word providence. And what we see here is God is working. And I think that's particularly highlighted because none of the major characters of the book of Esther are involved in all. There's no wailing Mordecai. There's no cunning Esther working. Right? No one's working to pull this off. I think that's intentional to make clear that this incredible turn in the story, which is about to take place, is not caused by them, but by the Lord himself. I'm not the only one who concludes this. One commentator puts it this way. This reinforces the message that no one in the story, not even the most powerful person in the empire, is in control of what is about to happen. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. In spite of having all the power at his disposal, Haman's carefully laid plans were turned against him simply because the king had a sleepless night. God is ruling. And if God was ruling 2,500 years ago in ancient Persia, I believe it is safe to assume he is ruling in your life as well. Do you believe that, Christian? God is reigning over you. Even when we can't see what God is doing, even when we find ourselves in a tough spot, we're kind of in a tough spot these days as a nation, don't you think? We're all wearing face masks. I mean, you all wish you were preaching this morning just to take off the face mask, right? There's riots in our, just down the road in our great city of Washington, D.C. And all that's taking place and the unrest and the and, and, and the abuse of power and, and the violence is taking place. And we think, this is, we're in a tough spot. Do we believe that God is reigning when things are difficult? You know, the Bible says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, do you know it? Not seen. Like providence. Right? We need to have faith in difficult times, in the midst of trouble. I think that's what the book of Esther is teaching us. I think it's incredibly providential that we're studying it even in the midst of what's happening in our nation now. This will teach us, strengthen our faith. Another way to strengthen your faith in God's providence is to consider how God has worked in your life in the past. I think this might be a good activity for you this week in your quiet times. Maybe a conversation over lunch that you might take time to consider how has God already worked in your life providentially? How has God guided your path, worked through you and in you? I like how one pastor puts it. He says, assume the providence of God and reinterpret the data. Right? Go look at your life and interpret the data through a lens that God is ruling. I would simply look at my life and I would say there are hundreds of realities that I could point to as to how God ruled in me and through me and I had no idea who was doing it at the time. When I was in college, it's nice to see all these uh, graduates of, uh, of, uh, of college and high school. And I've, you, of course, you begin to think about your college time. When I was in college, I had absolutely no intention of becoming a pastor. That was the farthest thing from my mind. And yet, for some reason, I, I decided to minor in uh, speech. I mean, talk about a useless course of study. Why would anybody do that? Right? In fact, I even joined this speech team. I, I traveled all over the Northwest doing uh, persuasive speech uh, speaking competitions. You think, who in the world does that? Well, dorks do that. Okay? 
I was, I was one of them. I was there, right? And for some reason, this is what I was doing. Had no idea I'd end up uh, making a living, uh, giving monologues every week. And yet this is, this is how God is ruling, that God providentially, uh, uh, unknown to me, was guiding my paths and, and, and setting my foot forward. And I think he has done this hundreds of times in my life. I trust he has done in your life, that God is working in your life. He is sovereign. He rules this day. The great Puritan John Flavel would say, he who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. I like that. He who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. In other words, if you have an eye for what God is doing, if you are looking for it, you will soon see it. How how exciting would that be this week? God, I'm going to go in this week, believing your ruling over my life. I'm going to be looking for the effects, the handprints, the fingerprints of your reign. We perhaps should have our eyes readjusted. That might help us to trust our God's rule, especially in difficult times. Of course, this now brings us to scene number two, this arrogant assumption. An arrogant assumption, it seems as if the king almost jumps out of bed and begins to pace around as the servants scurry after him. He thinks this requires action, right? Something needs to be done for Mordecai. But the question is what? Right? Because as you read the book of Esther, it's clear that the king is totally incapable of independent thought. Every decision without fail that he makes is based upon the advice of other people. And so he asks, well, who is there to question about this? As you see in verse 4, and the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows he had prepared for him. I guess who shows up to work early? Well, it just happens to be Haman, who just happened to finish the gallows. The exact moment that the king realizes Mordecai must be rewarded for saving his life. Haman is approaching the king to also talk about Mordecai, but to ask him to kill Mordecai. In fact, I think it would be funny if the construction of the gallows is what kept the king awake. right? If he said, what's all that banging and all the sawing? I can't sleep at all. And of course, this leads him to conclude that Mordecai must be saved. Well, Haman there, of course, wants to get Mordecai impaled upon this 70-foot pole to get him crucified so he can enjoy his uh, dinner with the royal couple. What a great day this is going to be for Haman. He's going to publicly kill and humiliate his his archenemy, Mordecai. uh, And and then uh, that's all in time for his uh, banquet with the king and queen. I mean, this is going to be the best day of his life. And, And, of course, what a lucky moment. He must be thinking that the king, very early in the morning, is actually summoning him in. Well, you'll see it's actually not so lucky at all. As we see, continue the story in verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Let him come in. And what we see here is a providential plan, that God has a different plan for Mordecai than Haman does as he enters, and the king asks for counsel. According to verse 6, we read, so Haman came in, and the king said, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, notice how he asked that question. Not not what should be done for Mordecai. Haman would have answered that question, well, I know what should be done with Mordecai. Is what should be done to the man? The man that the king delights to honor. I think that's a key phrase. It's actually mentioned six times in the rest of this chapter. The, The man the king delights to honor. Of course, Haman thinks, I know exactly who that is, right? As you read on in verse 6. Uh, we, we see and Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? More than me. This is one of the few times in the book of Esther that we're actually helped. We're actually given insight into what somebody is thinking. I think it only happens twice, both in, uh, uh, with Haman. And we're, we're told uh, we're, we're, uh, a glimpse of Haman's heart and his, uh, his own thought process. And Haman, of course, cannot fathom that the king would want to delight anyone more than him. This we might rightfully call arrogance or pride. I think Haman is perhaps the case study on pride. C.S. Lewis defined pride this way. A ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. If you're proud, you're concentrating on you. Everything becomes about you. 
The relationships are about you, the job is about you, the activity is about you, the people are about you, the thing is about you. Nothing is about uh, the, them or, or the job, it's always about you. And there's, therefore, there's always this ego calculation constantly occurring. How, am I be, how do I appear? How am I being perceived, right? How am I being regarded? Where the proud are always thinking about themselves. Often, they think themselves to be superior. That's an obvious form of pride, isn't it? I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm more talented than you, I should get that job, I should get that raise, right? I, I, I should have this open lane in the highway because I'm better than everybody else. They're always thinking that they're better than others. But what about those who feel inferior, right? Well, I, I would suggest to you they're also proud, right? I, I'm ugly, I'm not talented, I'm not gifted, no one likes me. Who are they thinking about? Well, they continue to think about themselves, they're just as self-absorbed, right? They're still always calculating, how am I appearing? How am I being perceived? They're just not doing as well, right? And so their focus is on themselves. They, you, you could think less of yourself, but you're still proud because you're still thinking of yourself. I appreciate what Tim Keller says, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less Catch that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility is not simply having a low opinion of yourself. It's actually self-forgetfulness. And so you might know someone's humble. You don't walk away from them thinking, man, that, that, she is really humble. He's really humble. You walk away from them thinking, wow, they really care about me. Right? They seem very happy, seem very at ease, and really interested in me. Right? If you're, if you're not thinking of yourself, if you're humble, then what's left to think about? Of course, others, and for the Christian, I think, namely, it's God. The humble are preoccupied with God. The humble person forgets himself, and they focus on God, and they want to help others see the majesty and the glory of God. Of course, this is not what Haman is living for, is it? Haman is, is filled with pride, and now he has his opportunity to ask for whatever he wishes. The king says, what, what should I do for the man I want to delight, to honor? And it seems clear to me that Haman has thought long on this topic. He's like a kid who's asked what they want for Christmas and, and off the list rolls, right? He has considered this a number of times. I find his proposal to be rather amazing, as you see in verse 7. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And, and so uh, he says, you know, you know, King, what you, what you should do is you should, you should put a robe on this guy, and not just any robe, but you should put uh, your robe on him. And he should uh, be able to ride a horse, but just not any horse, just not a really nice horse, but he should be able to ride your horse. Right? There's a difference there. I mean, one thing for the president to say, listen, let me buy you a plane ticket that you fly anywhere you want to, or, or him saying, would you like to use Air Force One for the day? Right? There's a big difference there. He says, no, let him, let him ride, wear your robe, let him ride your horse. And then, you notice verse 9, he continues, doesn't he? And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress uh, the man uh, whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead them on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He says, now, king, what you do, once you've got your robe and your horse, you get the highest ranking official you can. You go get, uh, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, and you, you ask him to dress this man and put this man on the horse. And then that person will lead him on a parade throughout the city, shouting, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. That's Haman's answer. You ought to treat him like the king. And when Jonathan gave David his robes, Jonathan was acknowledging that David was the rightfully appointed king. You ought to exalt him to the highest position. You ought to declare to everyone that you, king, delight to honor him. See, Haman doesn't want wealth. He has it. He doesn't want power. He has it. He says, I want everyone to know that you, king, think I'm the best. I, that I'm so good, I ride your horse and I wear your robes. Right? It's not the man that the king honors, but honoring me actually brings you delight. And I want everyone to see it. 
I want everyone to see I'm admired. I want everyone to see I'm loved by someone as great as the king. One commentator said, we want not just honor, but someone we think the world of, thinking the world of us. And I wonder, I'm not sure if I'm right on this. Let me just throw this out for you to chew on. I wonder if in part, Haman's desire is not wrong. The part of it. I wonder if that, do we also not want one of ultimate glory delighting in us? I, I wonder if in some sense he's not asking for the wrong thing. He's just asking the wrong king. That we want the one of utmost glory loving us and delighting in us and even exalting us into his family. Of course, Haman goes too far, doesn't he? He says, not just enough to have that delight. I want everyone to know that I have it. I want it to be announced so that everyone can see it. And of course, that's pride, which brings us to our last scene, the plummeting pride, or we might say the plummeting proud. Let me pick up the story there in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai. The Jew. Uh, what, what, <laughs> I, what, what an incredible turn of events that must be. I just love how he's phrased it. Yes, we're going to do all this. We're going to do the robe. We're going to do the horse. We're going to do the parade. We're going to do the shouting. And, and Haman must be thinking, really? Is this going to happen? It's actually coming true. And do so for Mordecai. That's who I want you to do. In fact, not, uh, not, not only do you see this Haman not get the parade, but the parade goes to his arch enemy. Talk about raining on his parade. I mean, it's happening right here. I think, by the way, this is more evidence that God has a sense of humor. I, I, I really think the angels must gather around. He's saying, okay, watch this. This is going to be great. And, uh, and the king says, yes, do it all. It's great. I love it. It's a great idea. But do it for Mordecai. Everything you said as you finish verse 10, leave out nothing you have mentioned. In fact, Haman, since you're here, you could be the noble that leads his parade, as you see in verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse and so dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And this man came that morning to crucify Mordecai. And now he's organizing his parade. That is a strange day. I think it's going to be strange for Mordecai. I mean, he's at work at the king's gate. And, uh, I mean, you can imagine Haman showing up. His secretary knocks on his door and says, I'm sorry, but the prime minister Haman's here to see you. And he must be thinking, oh, boy, what's going on? I saw the 70-foot gallows as I came in. Right? Was that for me? What do you want, Haman? Well, I, you know, I, I got the king's robes and the horses outside. And I thought we would go on a parade in, in your honor today. I mean, just, I couldn't imagine what that, you know how you have your, your list of questions to ask when you get to heaven? Okay. Write this down, okay? Put this on the list. Go find Mordecai and say, what did you and Haman talk about during your parade? Right? Because if I was, if, if it was me, I wouldn't be able to be quiet at all. I'll be like, yeah, Haman, I really like it when you shout the thing, such shall it be done to the man who king, the king delights to honor. Do that again, Right? A little bit louder. Those guys can't over there. They can't hear you. You're doing such a good job, Haman. I'm so proud of you. Man, you are really good at leading my parade. This is fantastic, right? And uh, you imagine what that must have been like. I mean, it was an incredible, uh, uh, extraordinary transformation. I mean, last time we saw Mordecai, what? He was in sackcloth. He was wailing. And now the king, he's in the king's robes. Haman's crying out in his honor. We, well, it's quite a transformation, isn't it? Or he might say it's quite a transfiguration. You might, this week, consider the parallels between what's happening here and what happens to our Lord when he goes up to the mountain to pray. Well, the parade ends, and, and uh, Mordecai, well, he, the robe is returned, the horse goes back, and he goes back to work. You see, verse 12, then Mordecai returns to the king's gate. That's his office. It seems like he doesn't really care about all this, does it? It's like, well, you know, okay, the parade was fine, but I got a lot to do today. It's not gonna, work's not going to get itself done. I'm going back to work. You imagine his co-workers must have been asking him, how was the parade? Eh, it's all right. It's fine, I guess. But I got stuff to do. See, if Haman's proud, it seems that Mordecai seems to be the, the picture of humility. At least here, it's just doing my job. Man, I'm supposed to save the king's life. I'm a citizen. That's what we do. I'm supposed to do my job. I got work to do. 
And so he goes back to work. Haman, of course, is quite a different picture as you read on in verse 12. And Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And so you see uh, more shifts, more reversals here. The Jews who were once mourning, now we find Haman mourning, full of disappointment, full of pain. And he returns home. He regathers his friends and his wife, uh, Zeresh, and once again seeks their counsel, just as he did some 24 hours ago, as you see in verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so his wife evidently does not have much of a gift of encouragement, right? I mean, she comes and says, "Uh, I'm sorry, dear, did you say that you did Mordecai's parade and he's he's a Jew? I I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you're, you're a dead man. I mean, you're going to fall. I kind of like her, right? I mean, you're going you're gonna to fall before this guy. I mean, that's different. Yesterday, they were saying, advocating Mordecai's doom, and now, now they're acknowledging Haman's doom. They're evidently not as foolish as I first thought, because they seem to look at all that's happened and realize that, hey, this is not simply coincidence. Right? They say, okay, wait a second, let's get the facts straight. You did a parade, and, uh, and, and, and this is Mordecai, and, and he's a Jewish man. Maybe they know something of the, the God of the Jewish people. Maybe they, they know their own history of, of uh, the Jewish people's defeat over the Amalekites, uh, their own people, some thousand years ago. Maybe, maybe they're like Rahab, you know, living in Jericho, who recognizes that the God of the Jews is going to give them victory. And they say, listen, you are not going to win this one. This is going to end up pretty bad for you. It's quite a reversal, isn't it? Because up to this point, the people of God are in, have no power and in our terrible plight, and the enemies of God only grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And not because of the noble acts of God's people, uh, but, but through God's work, the people of God's fortune is, begins to change because the king simply has a sleepless night and a man would not bow to his boss. I mean, God's ways are certainly mysterious, aren't they? Sometimes God works through willing people. Sometimes he works guiding the, the heart of those who pose him. Sometimes he works through trivial uh, things. God is continually working. And even when we things look bad and awful, it does not mean God is not working. And so I, I, I feel like sometimes we think, okay, if things go good, that's like a point for God's team. And if things go bad, well, that's a point for the devil's team. And we're constantly keeping score. Okay, who's winning? And we look around and we say, well, clearly we're on the losing side these days. But don't you understand that's not how God works? God is always winning. Always. Nothing's out of control. He's not playing catch up. He's not saying, okay, how can I get ahead of this? How can I reverse this? Even when sin is happening, as the book of Esther teaches us, God is using those very sinful acts to accomplish his great purpose. And if you have any doubt, just look at Calvary's cross. Because the devil thinks he's, you know, in the crucifixion of Jesus, he's hit a walk-off home run. I mean, that's a baseball metaphor. I don't know, we used to play baseball in this country, okay? And he thinks, okay, I win. Of course, it is his doom, isn't it? God's not losing at any point, no matter what it looks like to us. God is always working for his purposes. And so maybe you feel like today you're living in Esther 5, Esther 4. And there's pain and trouble. You live in a world of woe. We need to trust God even in those times, especially in those times, that God's victory is assured. That the raging of this world in opposition to him and his people is in vain. That God will rule over it all. I mean, even Haman's friends seem to see this. And they say, Haman, you're a dead man. This is not going to work out for you. So what's Haman to do? Well, there's no time to think because the king's limo just arrived for the banquet. As you see in verse 14. While they were talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried him uh, hurried to bring Haman to the feast Esther had prepared. This, of course, is just the beginning of Haman's downfall, if you're familiar with what will happen in the next chapter. Quite a plummet of a very proud man. The Bible says in Proverbs 16 that pride goes before the fall. It also tells us in Proverbs 16, verse 5, that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord, be assured he will not go unpunished. 
And of course, if you're familiar with Scripture, you see these warnings over and over and over again against pride. You might think, well, why is there so much focus on pride in the Bible? I feel like we don't focus on it very often, right? We, 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 we don't talk about our own struggles with pride. We are not often convicted of them. And yet the Bible seems to continually exhort and warn us of this sin. I think it does so because pride is extremely dangerous. You see, the proud people, they, they never seem to, to learn. They never seem to, to advance. It's always someone else's fault, right? It's always the circumstances' fault. It's always it's the weather's fault. It's the traffic's fault. It's, it's their fault. It's, it's never me, right? It's, it's never them. I mean, you, do you know people like this? They've been fired for their fourth job, and it says, I just can't find a good place to work. You know, they're on their fifth marriage, and I just can't find a good spouse. Well, maybe it's you. But the proud can't see that, because they feel superior. And if they feel inferior, and you bring that to their attention, maybe you're the problem. Well, that's so crushing on them, so defeating on them, that no one will ever bring that counsel to them. It's not helpful at all. You see, they never seem to grow. In fact, they might grow, but they only grow in, in evil. Augustine said long ago that pride is, the, is a mother who is pregnant with all other sins. That all sins are birthed out of pride. Now think about that for a moment. Just think about sin. For instance, if you're struggle with bitterness or anger, you do so because you're proud. Right? Bitter people are proud people. If you hold a grudge, it is because you are, are proud. I mean, you can't stay that way unless you feel superior to someone. You can't stay that way unless you, you, you feel, I would never do such a thing. Right? That, that's, a, that's arrogance in us. Right? I, I would never be like that. Think about worry. You struggle with worry. You struggle with fear. Well, that's a symptom of pride. Why do you worry? Well, because you know how things are supposed to go, and they're not going the way you know how they should go. How do you know how they should go? You only think you know because you're proud. You, we think it ought to be this way, and therefore I'm going to freak out when it doesn't go that way. That's arrogance. We think about thanklessness and, and grumbling. That's the proud. They're proud of a sense of entitlement. I deserve that. That's mine. That's my lane on the highway. Get out of my way. Right? I, 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 I earn it. The humble are thankful. The humble are constantly realizing that everything uh, that they receive is a gift from God. They deserve hell and wrath for God for all eternity because of their sin. Everything else is grace. Everything else is a gift. And every day is like Christmas morning. All right? Uh, you realize you've been opening gifts all day long. I mean, you got out of bed, you had two legs, right? And you walked to a bathroom and there was running water. There's another gift. And you grabbed the toothbrush, that's a gift. You got teeth, that's a gift, right? And on and on. You've been opening gifts all day long and the humble recognize that and are thankful for that. It's the proud that are, have this sense of entitlement and they're filled with, with grumbling. In fact, to make, make it even worse, they probably, they never know. The pride is like that one sin that hides itself. All other sin, it seems to be obvious. So one put it this way, that, that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It is killing you without you having any ideas there. Right? You know if you're committing adultery. Right? No one says, oh, you're not my wife. Right? Right? You're where? You know when you're, you're given over to lust or anger or bitterness. That's obvious. Okay? You know. You know when you steal. But pride, it hides itself. And, and some people are even thinking about this. Oh, man, I wish so-and-so could hear this. I mean, never concern, considering that it's actually for you because that's pride. It's hiding, hiding itself in your heart. In fact, this is one of the great dangers of religion. And we're all here under extreme circumstances and all these rules and masks on our face. You are the most religious of religious people to actually put up with all this. Let me tell you, my religious friends, there is a danger to religion, and that is pride. If you get religious, that will help you conquer some sins. That will help you conquer materialism. That will help you conquer lust. That will help you conquer anger. But it might make pride grow if you're not careful. Because after all, you're God's people. After all, you're willing to come to church with a mask on your face. Right? After all, you obey God and seek after God. Right? And you begin to look down upon those who don't. Don't live like you. Don't live uh, the, the way you should. As one has put it, there is no pride like religious pride. There is no proud like a Pharisee. And therefore, God opposes the proud, the Bible says. He opposes Haman, as we shall see. The proud, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, will not go unpunished. And I, th I, I think that's a warning verse for us all. I mean, Haman had it all. Wealth, fame, honor, power. He's going into the best day of his life, and within 24 hours, he's disgraced and dead on a 70-foot pole in his own front yard. 
And I, and I wonder, some here or some who are watching our live stream, and everything's going good. Job's good, family's good, money's good, people respect you, everything's good, until it isn't. And there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of urgency to submit to God and to yield your life to his son. I mean, for Haman, it was gone in a day. For you and I, one day it will be gone. One day, each and every one of us, if Christ has not returned, will close our eyes to all of our accomplishments, all our degrees in which we've earned, and all the wealth in which we have accumulated, and all the relationships we have. We will close our eyes, and we will open them, and before us will be standing the holy creator of all things. And you will not want to show up there full of pride, because God opposes the proud. And so I tell you this morning, you have an opportunity to repent. Haman has no opportunity. You do. I do. We all have an opportunity to turn from that. And for those of us who are not followers of Christ, there is only one place to turn, and it is the Son of Jesus, uh, God's Son, Jesus Christ, who I think is foreshadowed throughout this chapter. You notice this chapter is largely about honoring this overlooked Mordecai by the Persian king. Seems to me this is quite a pointer to the ultimate honoring of the one who was overlooked, namely Jesus Christ. In fact, think about the parallels. Mordecai was a despised Jew, and he was sentenced to death by a corrupt government. In this case, it's Haman, not Herod. And the way in which he would die would be shameful, painful, and public for everyone to see. And yet by the king's power, instead of dying, Mordecai is exalted and elevated, as it were, to the right hand of the king himself. Does that sound familiar to you? Because there was one coming, and who has come, who was also a despised Jew, and he was not simply sentenced to death to die in a shameful, public, and painful way. He actually did die. And, and, and what a parade that was. He, he got a parade that day, don't you know? He, he, wore, he wore robes that day, but not robes of honor, but robes of mocking. He wore a crown that day, a crown of thorns. He didn't get to ride a horse that day. In fact, a cross rode upon him. Right? And, and there it is, paraded through the streets, not for people cheering, oh, this is what happens to the one whom the king delights to honor. They cheered in mocking and derision every step of the way. And even God himself was silent, would not answer his cry when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who split heaven itself with his words, that's my son, I love him, I am so pleased with him. On that day, when he hung upon the cross, he had no answer. Silent. And there he hung upon that cross and died for your sin, for all the pride that exists in your heart. He said, I will take that penalty. And yet, though he spent three days in the tomb, he did not remain there. We might ask, who is the one the king delights to honor? You know the answer, don't you? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul would write in the book of Philippians, He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Therefore, right? Therefore what? God has exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So Christ has been exalted, though that exaltation is largely visible only to those in heaven. There is a day coming, my friends, in which we shall see his glory, and there will be a parade in his honor, will there not? I, would, I don't know if the job's taken. I would like to be the one to lead it, if that's okay. And I would like to be able to shout, thus shall it be done to the one whom the king delights to honor. In fact, we will all be shouting that, will we not, one way or another. For Paul continues saying, so that at the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone, wherever you are, everyone on that day will confess that that's the one the king has honored. That's the one who is the Lord. Some of us, I trust all of us in this room, many of you watching, will be able to shout that with great joy and jubilation. But there are coming people who will shout it kind of like Haman shouted it for Mordecai, with great contempt and misery in their heart. They will acknowledge it, but do so with great sadness. I pray you would not wait for that day. Anyone in the sound of my voice who have yet to humble themselves and yield their life to Jesus Christ, that you would turn yourself over to him who will be exalted as the, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My Christian brothers and sisters, will you... Will you gaze upon Christ and therefore forget yourself and turn from the lingering pride that remains within our hearts that we may forget what I want and my dreams and my ambitions and my plans and yet be far more inclined to asking God, what are your plans for me? What are your ambitions for me this day? How should I represent you to this day? And we would find our great delight and our great joy in making much of our King. In fact, Paul begins this great passage here in Philippians saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Having this mind among yourselves, which is the mind of Christ. What is God's promise? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me just think about that. Gives grace to the humble. We might ask one last time as we end. Who is it that the king delights to honor? I would suggest to you it's the humble. The humble who despair of their own righteousness and turn towards Jesus. For he gives grace to those who have done so. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would grow us in that humility. You found us with hearts full of pride. And we'd all admit, I think, that it continues to linger. Will you not just simply give us a mental agreement, oh yes, I shouldn't be proud. Will you please help us to hate it? Scripture says, arrogance is an abomination to the Lord. That's your word for us. May it be an abomination to us as well. So, Father, as we think about all that Christ has done in his great humility for us, who totally forgot himself in every way in order that we might be redeemed, that we too would delight to forget ourselves, that we might live for him. We do so knowing that you rule today. The Lord reigns. Let the nations rejoice. You rule over our life. You rule over our country, even in the midst of this great dismay. May we walk into this week not thinking of ourselves, but being mindful. My God is taking care of me as we walk in faith. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.